good to see you at the EU public meeting. If I haven't met you before, my name's Rowan Kemp. Uh, it's my privilege to be helping the EU think about this particular book in the Christian Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. So it'd be helpful if you have got it there for you, if you could open it up or look on with the person next to you, that'll be really helpful today. Have you heard of this particular saying? You can see it there on the screen, I hope, uh, that faith is blind. Has anyone ever heard that phrase before? Faith is blind? Give me a wave if you have. You have, yeah. We like the idea, I think as a society, we like the idea that some things are we would do blind. We like the idea, in a way, of a bit of a leap into the dark. I mean, if you think rationally about a leap into the dark, you would never do it, right? Imagine standing at the edge of a room that you've never been in, someone blindfolding you and saying, okay, here's the door in front of you, there's a room, run, fast, now. You just go, oh, I don't know. Rationally, you don't like the idea of a leap into the dark, but, but actually you sort of do. Like, you know when you have a crush on somebody, when you really, really like somebody, you probably have not thought terribly rationally about it, not unless you're a sort of a fourth-year aeronautical engineer. Um, because we want, let's be honest, we want them to think rationally about everything all the time. Like, we don't want aeronautical engineers to ever go just, oh, just with the vibe or the feeling. We want, no, lots of details all the time. I was chatting with an aeronautical engineer last week who told me that he, in all seriousness, not a Christian person, uh, he was telling me in all seriousness that he does not believe anything that he cannot rationally demonstrate. And I was a bit incredulous about that. I, I said, sure, I don't think anyone can actually live like that. But he was adamant that actually he, makes, he does not believe anything without a solid rational basis. Now, as I said, I don't think anyone actually lives like that. I don't think he actually lives like that. I don't think you live like that. You don't actually rationally consider every single decision you make. In fact, some decisions you don't want to be impeded by. You like the supra-rational occasionally. You like the things where, actually, yeah, you, why do you love this person? I just love this person. I just, you know, there's, I can tell you good things, but I just love them. We like, our society likes the idea that some things are beyond rational, more than rational. And some people like the idea that faith, Christian faith, religious faith, but Christian faith in particular, is more than rational. It's that it's, maybe that it's blind to the facts. Our society doesn't quite likes that idea. Why? Well, because if faith is actually, no, no, if faith is actually blind, then that means certain things. Elizabeth Farrelly is a very prominent commentator in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, and a few weeks ago, when it was Easter time, she wrote an article, an opinion piece on Easter and the significance of Easter. And in the article, she described some of the things that the New Testament Gospels say about Jesus' life, about his life, his teachings, uh, his death, leading up to Easter time, that sort of made sense. But then she said this, having recounted some of the, some of the things that the Gospels say about Jesus' life, ministry and death, she then said, how much of it is true in the sense of historical fact matters not a jot. Fact is the lowest form of truth. Indeed, most religious arguments entirely misunderstand the role of fact. In things spiritual, fact is irrelevant. 
the question of whether God exists is not only unanswerable, but in the end, meaningless. Fact is the lowest form of truth in things spiritual. Fact is irrelevant. Our society likes the idea that faith, some sort of spiritual commitment, is blind. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't care about the facts. Facts are irrelevant, actually, when it comes. It's, I guess, in Elizabeth Farrelly's sort of understanding, it's more about the ideas of Jesus than the facts of Jesus. It's more or about the vibe of Jesus and the way he treated people than what he himself actually did in his own death. It's a, and that has the capacity, I presume, for Elizabeth Farrelly to somehow move the soul. So faith, she would say, yes, it's blind. It doesn't need the facts, in fact. Now, I think one of the reasons that our society really likes that idea is because if faith, Christian faith in particular, is not based on fact, then it has no objective hold on me or you or anyone else. If it's not actually based on fact, if it's actually just the vibe, the idea, and how it grips you or moves you or doesn't, then actually what you think religiously that has absolutely no hold over my life or anyone else's life for that matter. So it's a very convenient truth that faith is blind. Now, as a Christian person coming to you today, as I th think about faith, is faith blind? I want to say to you very clearly that yes, faith is blind. The Christian Bible leaves you in no doubt whatsoever that faith is blind. Two particular verses tell you that, in fact. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, defines faith this way. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is being certain of what you don't see. Or 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul says, We live by faith, as Christians, not by sight. You live by faith, not by sight, if you're a Christian person. That's right, isn't it? Because do you see the risen Lord Jesus in all of his glorious, immortal splendor? No, I presume not. You live by faith, not by sight. So it's true, faith is blind. It's not based on sight. But here's the key point. Just because it's not based on sight doesn't mean that it's baseless. Christian faith is not baseless, it's just not based on sight, it's based on something else. What's it based on? Well, it's based on testimony. And testimony is a very reasonable basis for belief. Let me give you an example of that. Um, my grandmother, who lived a very long time ago, my grandmother used to play the piano in the silent movies. You might not even know what a silent movie is. Um, well, as silent movies were what before they had movies had sound. You would go to the the picture show. You would go to the movies, and you would sit down with everybody else in a in a theatre like this, and a movie would play. But there's no sound. They didn't have the technology. There was no sound. It was just moving pictures. And you would can you imagine what that'd be like? You come in, you all sit down. Everyone's very quiet. Perfect silence. Watching the movie. Ah! Oh, that's, that, that's like, it'd be very strange, don't you think? It'd be very strange. Um, you certainly would never say to anyone, shh, I can't hear the movie, because there's actually nothing to hear. <laughs> anyway, to sort of relieve the weirdness of this, what they did was they had a piano down in the front corner, near the screen, 
and someone would be employed to provide a live soundtrack to the movie. And that was my grandmother. She would sit there as a young woman, about your age, sit there at the piano watching the movie. And depending on what was happening on the movie, she would play something out of the repertoire in her head. You weren't provided with a score to play. She would just watch it and look, okay, there's a romantic scene. She would flow into some sort of romantic prelude. And then there's a bit of slapstick on there. So she would, so this is what she did. Now, how do I know that she did that? I never saw her do it. I never saw her do it. But I believe, I believe 100% that she did. It's not based on sight. Why do I believe it? I believe it because my dad, her son, told me about it. I believe, I believe that it's true entirely based on testimony. That's an entirely reasonable and rational thing to do, isn't it? Believing on testimony. You've never seen Jesus, my, my guess is. Most people have not seen the risen Lord Jesus in all his glorious immortal splendour. But you believe based on testimony. Faith is blind, but only in a certain sort of way. It's not based on sight. It's based on testimony. And actually, the point of the passage that we're looking at today in, in Isaiah flips this all around. It turns out from the Christian Bible, it's not faith that is truly blind, it's unfaith that is blind. When you refuse to trust the testimony, then God says that's true blindness. That's when you really can't see, when you won't trust the testimony. So let's have a look at this. We're in this section of the book of Isaiah. Uh, We're looking from chapter 28 through to chapter 35. I'm trying to sort of navigate your way through these couple of chapters. And so it'd be helpful if you could call it up and have a look. Let's actually think about Judah, which is a nation at the time in the 8th century BC. Let's orientate ourselves to these passages by thinking about what was Judah's situation. So the situation in the 8th century BC. Judah is a very little country. Judah was not a very powerful country, but it did have a fairly sort of strategic location in that part of the world. The major superpower of the day, as you've heard me say before, if you've been in this series on Isaiah, was Assyria. And they really had all the other countries, including Judah, under the thumb. Some of the other big powers around were Babylon, but even they were under Assyria's thumb, and also Egypt. Egypt, very powerful, very impressive, as we heard in the reading. Impressive chariots, impressive sort of armies. However, Egypt also was under Assyria's thumb. Assyria was the big superpower. And uh, Judah was in this situation where, because of some stupid decisions made by a previous king, Ahaz, who we talked about earlier in the semester, uh, Judah was now a vassal state, really, of Assyria. They were paying all this money every year to Assyria to try to have some sort of independence, but they really weren't independent at all. They were completely under Assyria's thumb. The only reason Assyria had not sort of wiped them out was because Judah said, we'll pay you all this money will give you this tribute. So this is Judah's situation. Now the thing is, for Judah and the people who lived in this country, they worshipped the one true living God. The only God who really is God. The Egyptians had their gods, the Syrians had their gods, but there's only, there's only one true living God, Yahweh. And Judah worshipped this God. And this God had made a promise to Judah that they would be free. But they're not free. 
They're under a serious thumb. So Judah, Judah are longing for the day when they would be free. That's their situation. Then, opportunity. 705 BC. There's a change of king in Assyria. Now, I don't know if you pay much attention to world politics and what goes on, but when there's a, a change of a leader in a country, that can be, in many countries, quite destabilising. In Australia, we're very blessed. We have very stable changes of government, probably because they all seem the same anyway. But, <laughs> but in many countries of the world, that's not the case. And when you have a change of who the ruler is, often that country's attention focuses inward in order to create more stability, politically, internally, locally. And so their eyes and their attention sort of go off their ex external territories and more in, become more internal. And so in 705, as there's a change in leadership in Assyria, these other countries that have been under Assyria's thumb think, this is our opportunity. In particular, Egypt says to Judah, this is our moment. Will you form an alliance with us as we try to throw off the shackles of Assyria? So in Judah, what do you do? You think, well, we know the one true living God has promised us freedom. Assyria is suddenly destabilised. They're the people who are keeping us oppressed. Egypt's got this offer on the table. They've got this mighty army. Might this be the way that God is actually going to bring about his promise through this particular moment? And so what does Judah decide to do? Their solution? They form a strategic alliance with Egypt in order to secure the freedom that the one true living God had promised them. There's just a problem. In fact, that's not right. There's not a problem. There's three problems. There's problem, problem, problem. Three problems with this. And this is where we're going to look at some of the text. First of all, this plan that they have is not from the Lord. You got your Bible there? Let's look up some passages and see what the Lord's plan is. You can see there I've got the reference, Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Let's have a quick look there. This is what the Lord says, Woe to the obstinate children. Who are the obstinate children? They're His own children. They're the people of Judah. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. That's what they've done. What's the problem? He says, this is not my plan. That's the first problem. It's not my plan. Second problem. This plan will fail. Still in chapter 30, verses 12 to 14. This plan will fail. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth, hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. Uh, you've got to imagine a big high stone wall. Imagine a big, big stone wall and you're walking along looking for a nice picnic spot and you're walking along you go, oh, look, here's a nice spot in front of this wall. Look at the wall. It's got this big crack all the way down it. There's dust and bits of dirt sort of falling out of it. And then you sort of stop and look at it. It's actually got this massive big bulge out of it. 
Oh, yeah, let's, do, let's have our nice little picnic here. No, you're not going to go near that wall, are you? That's clearly a very bad wall. Well, this was a very bad plan. And God's saying, your plan is like a big wall with a big crack and a big bulge and it is going to fall. It is going to fail. And when it fails, so devastating will be the destruction that... When you go to pick up a piece of that wall, you won't even be able to find a piece that's big enough just to scrape out your fireplace or even scoop up just a little bit of water to get a drink. It's going to shatter. That's how good your plan is. It's terrible. It's going to fail. Problem one, not of the Lord. Problem two, it's going to fail. Problem three is the worst of all about their plan. The plan puts them, tragically, on the wrong side of God's judgment. Got your Bible there. Let's have a look at chapter 28. Chapter 28, verses 18 to 22. Notice what he says here. Verse 18. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. Now, what's going on there? He actually refers to this covenant with death and agreement with the grave a bit earlier in verse 15, where they're boasting in this covenant they've established. What's going on here? It's because in Egypt they worshipped all sorts of fake gods, gods who aren't the one true living God, and including they worshipped the God of death. And so what is the one true living God saying? He's saying, when, you've, when you abandon my plan and you go and form an alliance with Egypt, you're actually aligning yourself, not with me, but you're aligning yourself with the Egyptian gods. You've formed this covenant with death with the God of death. And how's this going to go? Verse 18, halfway through. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away, morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim, He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon. He's referring to two parts in Israel's history where God had come to the rescue of his people and beaten down the enemies. So he's going to rouse himself again, except he's going to rouse himself to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Hang on, what does he mean, his strange work, his alien task? Keep reading. Now stop your mocking or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. He is going to come in judgment, but it's going to be his strange work because he's going to come in judgment against you, his own people. Why? Because you've allied yourself not with him, the one true living God. You've now allied yourself with those who oppose him, with those who don't worship him, who worship the fake gods. So this is not going to be good. For them. Problem, problem, problem. So, let's reflect on this a little bit. What does this mean? What does this mean for you? What does it mean for me? How is any of this related to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? So, let's try and do this before we come to an end. A couple of reflections. First is this What is then true blindness? Got your Bible there? Let's have a look at this particular part, chapter 29, verses 9 to 12. This is where the blindness metaphor is used. Chapter 29, verses 9 to 12. 
The Lord says, Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. If you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, read this please, he will answer, I can't, it's sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, he will answer, I don't know how to read. It sounds very obvious, right? <laughs> What's his point? He's saying, I'm telling you how this is going to go. I'm telling you the outcome of all of this, this crazy plan of yours, this terrible plan of yours, but you are not listening. It is like you are blind, like you are deaf. You are not seeing what I'm revealing to you. True blindness in this account is refusing to believe God's word. That's true blindness. Refusing to listen to what he, the one true living God, tells you. It's not faith that is blind. If faith is trusting what God says, it's unfaith. Refusing to trust what he says. That is true blindness. I'll tell you a story about um, a lovely woman I know. She's in her, now she'd be, oh, she must be, I think, 80 now. Um, I've known her for nearly 20 years. When she was a, a young married woman with a couple of kids, like I think she was in her 30s, she had perfect eyesight. Um, but then she realised that there was a black spot in her vision. And over the next number of years, that black spot just kept getting bigger and bigger. Can you imagine sort of seeing, being able to see, and then, but there's this black spot you just cannot see. There's just always there. No matter where you look, there it is, right? This black spot. It's called macular degeneration. And over the years, that black spot, there's nothing you can do about it. That black spot just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. By the time I met her in her 60s, she was full of love for the Lord Jesus, a great supporter of God's work around the world, a fantastic prayer, encourager of others. But that black spot had got so big that it filled almost the entirety of her vision. All she could see was just a bare periphery. So if you look straight ahead, you can do this with me, look straight ahead and that's where you're looking, but you can sort of see, just with keeping your eyes forward, you can just sort of see a little bit of the edges there. You just get, you can't see it straight on, right? Because if you turn or look, at, it's gone, right? All she had was just the bare periphery. And you might think, well, that's good that she had the periphery. Except that when you just have the periphery, it doesn't do you much good because you can never see how anything is actually connected. You, get a you can sense something over there and something over there, but you have no idea whether are those things connected at all? How might they be connected? You can't see where you're going at all? When we try to cut the one true living God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, out of our life, when we refuse to trust what he has actually revealed, it's like you're giving yourself spiritual macular degeneration. You're cutting the truth that holds it all together out of your sight. 
And I, it seems like you have physically great vision maybe, but actually as you're moving through life, you cannot truly perceive how things are held together under the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't actually see where you're going. Spiritual blindness. Because you've cut out the Lord Jesus Christ from your worldview. Unfaith is blindness. So that's true blindness. What is true wisdom? Notice here, if you've got your Bible, chapter 29, again. This time verses 13 to 14. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. The Lord says he's going to do a new wonder here, wonder upon wonder. And what's his new wonder? That he's going to make the wisdom of the wise perish and the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. See, Judah thought they were being pretty wise, pretty intelligent as they ran down to Egypt in order to secure the future that God had actually promised them. He promised freedom. Here's their wise, worldly way of actually securing that future that God had promised. But God says, the wisdom of the wise will perish and the intelligence of the intelligent will come to nothing. Now, if you're a Christian person, being around and know your Bible a little bit, as I read out those verses, did that ring a bell? Have you heard that before? Yeah, you have. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, right? Because this is the one true living God. This is his way in the world. He doesn't choose the wise and the super intelligent. He chooses you and me. Sorry, if you thought you were the wise and the super intelligent. <laughs> he chooses the foolish in the world. Why? In 1 Corinthians, to shame the strong. He chooses the weak to make clear that actually he is the strength. So the wisdom of the wise, he brings that to nothing. And where's the supreme example of that? Well, in 1 Corinthians, it's in the cross of Jesus. When you look at the cross of Jesus, you think there is utter foolishness, complete failure. And yet God says, there is my wisdom through which I'm bringing salvation to the world. And the world looks at it and says, that's just stupid. And God says, that's my wisdom in my son. That's God's way. And that's what he was doing here with Judah. That's what he does in the Lord Jesus Christ. True wisdom isn't found in the wisdom of the world. It's found in trusting him. Now that brings us to where I'm going to land this for you and for me. How does this affect what we do? How will you live? Well, I want to say you've got two choices. You can follow Judah, metaphorically, down to Egypt, chasing the wisdom of the world to secure the future that God has promised for you. Or, like Jesus himself, you can trust God's promises and rest in that. God's plan here, when you read through these chapters, God says at one particular point, my plan for you wasn't to run down to Egypt, he says, repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. 
His plan for them was just to trust His promise. Trust His promise. They didn't have to do anything. But they ran off, chasing the wisdom of the world to secure the future that God had promised. But He says that comes to nothing. Now, when I put this choice up before you, are you going to run down to Egypt or are you going to follow Jesus and rest in God's promises? You face this choice all the time, but you might not have realised it. And the reason you haven't realised it is because we so often take on worldly wisdom as we seek God's future for us. Let me give you a couple of key examples. Comfort. You know when you're really sad, when you're grieving, when you're mourning, when you're pretty disappointed about stuff? What's the solution when, you're, when you need comfort? And you know what? God wants to give you comfort. He wants to comfort you as his loved creatures. What do you do? You go to retail therapy. You go shopping and buy stuff. Go on a holiday to, to sail the blues away. Like that's what you do, right? But what's God's way? Come to his word. Seek the true comfort that only he can give. But how many times have you gone retail therapy? Or what about thinking about family? You want a family? You're hoping you can find somebody to settle down with, have some kids, so you've got your own loving, sort of secure family. I mean, God wants you to have a family. He does. He wants you to have a family. Okay. Well, I better secure that for myself then, right? I hope, I hope he provides me with someone who loves him and then will love me. And oh, But he hasn't. He hasn't provided someone who loves him and loves me. Well, I guess I better... I'll go for somebody who doesn't love him but seems to love me. To secure a family. But, but what's the way of faith? The way of faith is... God does want to give you a family. He's given you a family, hasn't he? Of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't, hasn't he given you a family? And are you going to seek for the love and security and joy and fun and pleasure and comfort? Are you going to seek for that amongst the very family that he's given you? And will you trust that that will be enough if he doesn't provide more? Will you trust him with that? Will you... Or will you run down to Egypt? Well, what about security? And I'll finish with this one. And then I'm going to run really fast out of here. Because if your parents hear of what I say, they might try and stone me. <laughs> what, about, what about security? How are you going to secure your material future? You know, one of the new biggest reasons that I keep hearing from people about why they wouldn't choose to come back and say serve as a Howie at Sydney Uni to serve the next generation of students, you guys, right? As I'm out there talking to graduates about why they wouldn't come back, you know what the reason I'm hearing again and again at the moment is? I can't, I've just, I've, got, I've now got a mortgage. I've bought myself a house. Well, and you know what? If you want to get into the Sydney housing market, let me tell you, you've got to work hard. You've got to get a good job 
and you've got to stay at home though, get a job, stay at home, save up all your dollars, hopefully you've got enough for a deposit, then you can get a deposit, or maybe because your parents are rich, they'll help you, or grandparents, they're super rich, they might help you. And then you move in for exactly six months until you can get the tax breaks, then you move back home, and, and, then, and then hopefully you can actually sell that to get the next place. Your whole life is actually already determined. I hate to burst this bubble, but you want to play the Sydney housing property market, your next 40 years are already determined, you have no choices. So you've got to decide actually, you're going to play that game? Or are you actually going to trust God? When he says, I know what you need, seek first my kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. We make these decisions all the time. Run off after Judah down to Egypt? Or follow the example of the Lord Jesus, who in the face of all sorts of temptations, trusted the word of God. In rest and repentance is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength.